The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, Odette. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm uh, delighted uh, to be a guest in your show. Thank you. This is Glenn Lowry, and you've tuned in to The Glenn Show at Substack.com and at YouTube. The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I am John Paulson, Senior Fellow. And I'm with Odette Galore, who I'm happy to report is my colleague at uh, Brown University in the Economics Department. He's the Herbert Goldberger Professor of Economics, a very distinguished uh, scholar uh, whose new book, it's out a year or so, uh, is called The Journey of Humanity. And Odette has been kind enough to agree to spend some time talking with me here about about the book, which I gather has been published in many languages, Odette. Indeed. So uh, the book, as you said, The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality, uh, was released uh, in March 2022 by Penguin Random House here in the U.S. and by the corresponding Penguin Random House in the, in the U.K. But at the same time, it was uh, uh, commissioned for translation into 28 different languages, and at the moment, in fact, it is translated into 31 different languages across the globe. And well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you're an economist, and it sounds like from the title, that's the subject for an anthropologist to take up. Uh, what is it about uh, your uh, take that uh, commends an economist to this, uh, to this uh, subject? Right. So, indeed, the, the book is dealing with the journey of humanity and, if you wish, with the macro history of humanity as a whole. But nevertheless, it centers around uh, several fundamental questions that are primarily uh, uh, economic-based. So, the journey of humanity, my book, is in fact an attempt to understand the journey of humanity since the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa 300,000 years ago. And primarily, it's an attempt to resolve two fundamental mysteries that surrounds this journey. The first one, I defined as the mystery of growth. Namely, what is the origin of this incredible transformation that occurred in living standards in the past 200 years after literally hundreds of thousands of years of near stagnation. And the second mystery is the mystery of inequality. Namely, what is the origin of this vast inequality in the wealth of nations? Why some countries are rich and others are poor? And why much of the inequality that we see across nations today is originated in the past 200 years? And to a large extent, I argue that a significant portion of the inequality as we see it at the moment 
is originated in forces that operated in the distant past, forces that were formed hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago. And therefore, we would like to mitigate inequality across the globe today. We would like to close the gap across nations to get today. We will have to design policies that will be historically based, country-based, will have to be specific to the history of each nation, specific to the geography of each nation. This will place us in a position to mitigate much of the inequality that we see across the globe today. I have, I have a question. So you, it's, it's the, um, the mystery of, of growth, uh, which is a phenomenon of the last 200 years, but it's also the mystery of inequality between nations, which you say has its roots and patterns that could be thousands of years old. So how do you reconcile those, those two? Indeed. So when we think about the journey of humanity as a whole, and when we attempt to resolve the mystery of growth, namely this dramatic transformation that occurred in living standards in the past 200 years, it's quite apparent, first factually, that income per capita in the world economy as a whole has increased 14-fold in the past 200 years after 300,000 years of near stagnation, Life expectancy has doubled in the past 200 years after fluctuating in a narrow band of 25 to 40. Something very dramatic occurred in the past 200 years. And this transformation did not occur at the same time period across the globe. Some societies, Western Europe and their offshoots in America, in the, in the Americas, took place, their takeoff took place around 200 years ago, perhaps even earlier. But in other regions of the world, this takeoff took place significantly later. And since this takeoff was associated with a 14-fold increase in the standard of living, this generated an incredible divergence across the globe. But now, why do we need to look even deeper in human history to understand the inequality that emerged in the world economy in the past 200 years? Because naturally, the differential timing of the takeoff across the globe was predicated on forces that operate, operated much earlier, geographical forces and their effect on institutional characteristics and cultural characteristics, and human diversity that affected economic development in the course of human history. So at the beginning of the 19th century, when we see this parts of the world is taking off and enjoy this dramatic increase in living standards, other societies do not have the type of structure that is needed for the takeoff. And the reason is based on forces that operated early on in human history. So in this respect, much of the inequality that we see across the globe is based on forces that were operated, as I said, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago. Okay, okay. So the inequality is due to difference in the timing of the incidence of the takeoff. Those timing differences are themselves due to deep forces that go back a long way. Precisely. 
So talk to me about the stagnation and about the takeoff. It's, it's, it really is quite dramatic as you describe it in the book. Indeed. So, so part of the description in the book is based on, on a, a theory that I founded over the years that is known as unified growth theory. This is an attempt to understand the process of development in its entirety. So the development of unified growth theory was predicated under the assumption that in order to understand inequality today, we will have to understand how this inequality emerged gradually in the course of human history and how the transition from stagnation to growth took place. Namely, if we will restrict ourselves only to the modern growth regime, we will not be able, we will not be in a position to understand much of the inequality that we see at the moment, and we will not be in a position to understand the forces that contributed to this inequality in the course of human history. So I, please. No, I was just gonna remark, it's worth contrasting this with the growth theory that I learned when I was a graduate student at MIT in the 1970s which presupposed a modern framework of production and technology and focused on the accumulation of factors of production, especially capital, where technical change was exogenous, population growth was exogenous, and the structure was pretty much fixed. And it seems to me that you were saying that doesn't go nearly deeply enough if one wants to understand the differences in economic development between, between nations. Precisely, because in fact, if you take the model that you were exposed to, the so-called solo growth model, this growth model is predicated on the assumption that economies are already in the modern growth regime. Economies already experience a takeoff, and from this point onward, the forces of convergence are operating, and economies are expected to converge to one another over time, because those that are coming from behind are experiencing the benefit of being subjected less to diminishing returns, and consequently they can converge faster. But what unified growth theory suggests to us that in fact much of the inequality that we see across the globe is originated due to the differential timing of the transition. And therefore the solo growth model cannot really take us into a position in which we can understand this inequality. This inequality is due to the differential timing of the transition, not due to the operation of societies in the modern growth regime. And as a result of it, most of the modeling is an attempt to understand how, in fact, societies manage to move from stagnation to growth. What are the forces that ultimately brought about this transition from stagnation to growth? And why these forces operated in a different pace across the world, leading into the inequality that we see across nations today. Well, naively, you say stagnation. Naively, I would have thought uh, a human being alive in 1900, 200 years ago, 100 and 1800, was much better off than a human being alive in the year zero who in turn was much better off than a human being alive in the year 10,000 BCE. I would have thought that the calories per uh, day that a person was consuming or the, uh, uh, the technological, uh, agricultural productivity or whatever would have been 
would have been uh, different. And you say there's stagnation until just 200 years ago. Can you, what's wrong with my naive uh, assessment? Right. So when we look at the process of development, one can identify three fundamental phases of development. The first one can be defined as the Malthusian epoch. And this is an epoch that is characterized by interesting dualism. On the one hand, stagnation in living standards, but on the other hand, some dynamism in the context of population, technology, and human adaptation. Now, this epoch of stagnation lasts over 99.9% .9 of human existence. It starts with the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa 300,000 years ago, and it lasts till the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Now, during this time period, individuals are innovating, not at the pace that we see at the moment. Naturally, at the beginning of the process, we see the emergence of stone tools that are replaced by another type of stone tools, and progress is very rudimentary and very slow. But nevertheless, progress permits individuals to have more resources. But unlike today's world, in which technological progress is converted into the prosperity of the existing population, this is a time period in which technological progress and the increase in the material well-being of the population was converted into lower mortality, higher fertility, and consequently higher population growth. So after a short period of time, after the arrival of a new technology, population increased proportionately and income per capita reverted back to the previous equilibrium position. And consequently, what we see in the course of human history are Malthusian fluctuations. When technology arrives, there is a temporary increase in income per capita, but ultimately population increases proportionately, <clears throat> bringing about a decline in income per capita back to the previous equilibrium position. And therefore, in the long run, the well-being of the population, say, in the Fertile Crescent 5,000 years ago, was not very different than the well-being of the average person in England in the 14th century or the average person in Greece in the 4th century BC. So this is what we see in the course of human history, a long period of Malthusian stagnation. It is not a true stagnation in the sense that technology is advancing, the size of the human population is advancing, and humans are adapting to their uh, technological environment, but it is a period of stagnation in terms of the standard of living. Aha. Uh -huh. So what happens that causes this long period, 99.9% .9 of human history is... A wave after wave of continuing technical progress, but the population expanding to soak up the benefits of that progress and leaving the average quality of the life of the individual not much change. I want to ask what happens, but first I want to know what's the evidence for the claim that you're making? How, how, how do we know as much as you claim to know about the uh, level of uh, economic well-being of people thousands of years ago? Right. So, so there are different types of evidence that can be, can be used. One can look at uh, wages uh, measured in, uh, in kilograms of widths in different time periods, and we can see that wages do not differ significantly 
between the Babylonian period to the Roman period to the Greek period and perhaps uh, uh, pre-industrialization period in England. So there's some evidence that are showing us that this is indeed the case. But in fact, one can conduct uh, cross-country analysis looking at, uh, um, at productivity across nations in different time periods in human history, say in the year 1 or in the year 1000 or in the year 1500, and see whether in fact the Malthusian mechanism is operating. Namely, we look at the level of technology in the year one. Do we see that countries that enjoy a more sophisticated technology indeed have higher income per capita or simply higher population density? In fact, in a paper of mine that uh, was published in the American Economic Review 2011, I do precisely that. Together with uh, my uh, former student, Kwangu Lashov, we show that in fact, if you look at exogenous source of variations in the level of technology, those societies that benefit from a higher level of, te uh, of technology are not more prosperous, they simply have higher population density. So we show it, as I said, in the year one, in the year 1500, and in the year uh, uh, 1000. But one can do it even in the context of individual country over time. One can basically look at uh, the lengths of the Malthusian fluctuation. So people estimated the lengths of the Malthusian fluctuation. And typically, you can see that, uh, that it lasts for about 150 to 200 years. So it's sizable. And this caused some confusion because when you look at the data, you can find a certain time period in which the prosperity of the population is well above subsistence, is well above the long-run trend, but if, in fact, you will continue to follow this population sufficiently, you will see that ultimately population is adjusting and uh, an income per capita is reverting back to the previous equilibrium position. But we have to remember that reproduction takes place over time, and as a result of it, the adjustment is not instantaneous, and these Malthusian fluctuations are long-lasting. So at the moment, I mean, if you would have asked me this question about uh, 20 years ago, perhaps the evidence were more scattered. But at the moment, we have significant amount of evidence about the fact that the world was Malthusian, that in fact technological progress was converted predominantly into larger populations rather than into greater prosperity of the human population. So what happened? to affect uh, the end of that Malthusian stagnation period and to occasion this, uh, this takeoff. Right. So that's the beauty of unified growth theory in the sense that uh, unified growth theory tries basically to develop a single theory that will capture the Malthusian epoch and the spontaneous takeoff from the Malthusian epoch into the post-Malthusian regime and ultimately into the modern growth regime. So one has to... Um, so, so in, in order to understand it more fully, one has to ask the following question. So think about the world. When we think about the world, as I said, it appears that the world is in a Malthusian steady state. It is rather stable for a long period of time. Stable in the sense that when technology is, 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 is shocking the economy, population is adjusting and bringing us back to the previous equilibrium position. So how do we escape? from right. a globally stable equilibrium. 
So one possibility is to consider the, the, a world that is characterized by multiple steady states. There is the Malthusian equilibrium. There is a modern equilibrium. The world is stuck in the Malthusian equilibrium. Industrialization takes place. Industrialization is a huge shock that basically brings the economy from the basin of attraction of the Malthusian equilibrium into the basin of attraction of the modern equilibrium. Now, this is relatively simple to model, but it is entirely counterfactual. It is entirely counterfactual because if you look at technological progress in the eve of the Industrial Revolution, during the Industrial Revolution, and after the Industrial Revolution, it is quite apparent the total factor productivity growth is a continuous process. We cannot identify a structural break that will take us from one equilibrium into another equilibrium. But I got to stop you. I got to stop you because there's so much information and people are trying to follow. This is a framework that you are ultimately going to reject, the one that you're describing right now. And I want people to make sure they know what you're rejecting. Indeed. You're rejecting a model in which you say there are multiple equilibria and the Malthusian stagnation equilibrium is one, and then there could be another somehow with coordination or something that is more technologically uh, effective at raising human living standards. You say this can't be true, however, because the historical data don't show the pattern that you would expect to see if a multiple equilibrium theory were correct. Indeed, indeed, precisely that. So this leaves us with an attempt to understand how an economy can gradually escape a stable equilibrium. And this is a contradiction in terms. If we have a stable equilibrium, minor shocks cannot take us out of this equilibrium. You cannot crawl out of a black hole. So how do we escape? So the way the ingenuity and unified growth theory is based on insight from the mathematical field of bifurcation theory. Namely, we know the dynamical systems can change quite dramatically as parameters are crossing certain thresholds. Now, this may appear very, uh, uh, very uh, theoretical and very abstract, but in fact, it is met precisely into the evidence. So think about this, the situation that we have in hand. We have a Malthusian equilibrium. How do we escape from the Malthusian equilibrium? in the way that I will explain at the moment, but in terms of bifurcation theory, what will happen is that there will be a certain latent force that will operate behind the, behind the scene, will reach a critical point. Once this critical point will be reached, the Malthusian equilibrium will simply vanish, a new equilibrium will emerge, which is the modern growth equilibrium, and the world will be siphoned towards this equilibrium. So this will be the way to reconcile a movement from, an, from a stable equilibrium. Now, as I said, at the moment, it may appear completely abstract. So let me it try does. to make a sense out of it. Please. So again, humanity is emerging in Africa 300,000 years ago. The size of the human population is very modest. But the human population, unlike other species, is equipped with a powerful tool, the human brain. And this powerful tool permits humanity to innovate. Innovation, as I said earlier, initially is rather rudimentary. One stone tool is replacing another stone tool. But the arrival of a stone tool increases resources. The increase in resources allow the human population to support more people. 
Why is it more? Why is it so important? Because more people implies more potential innovators, and as a result of it, the next wave of technological progress will occur earlier. It will support even more people. More people will support faster technological progress. In addition, faster technological progress will generate an adaptation of the human population. The composition of the human population will change and will become gradually more complementary to the growth process. And this reinforcing interaction between what I defined as the wheels of change, technological progress, the size of the human population, and the composition of the human population are reinforcing one another in the course of human history and bringing us gradually into a tipping point that will cause the Malthusian equilibrium, for reasons that I will explain, to vanish. So what is happening here? As I said, think about technological progress. 300,000 years ago, the tools that are available for you stone tools, rudimentary stone tools. In the eve of the Industrial Revolution, after 300,000 years of stagnation, we reach the stage in which humanity possess steam engine technologies. Think about the scale of the human population. In the eve of the Agricultural Revolution, 12,000 years ago, the size of the human population is only about 2.5 million people. In the midst of industrialization, the size of the human population increases 400-fold to 1 billion people. So despite this era of stagnation in terms of living standards, over 300,000 year period, technological progress accelerates and reaches a critical point. The population becomes significantly larger so as to support this acceleration and humans are adapting to the technological environment and becoming increasingly more complementary to this environment. And then we reach a stage in which the environment starts to change so rapidly that responsible parents understand that in order to equip their children with the proper tools to deal with the rapidly changing technological environment, they need to invest in the education of their children. So for the first time, we see the emergence of universal education that is designed, that is geared to industrial needs. And this is a time point in which, in order to invest in this education, naturally you have to economize on another element in your budget constraint. But parents are too poor to economize on their own consumption, so they must economize on the number of children. And at the moment that they economize on the number of children, the Malthusian link breaks. And as a result of it, technological progress is no longer counterbalanced fully by population growth. And this permits the world to sail into the sustained growth regime. Aha. This seems very important. The Malthusian era is... Uh, defined by population increasing when technology increases, and that breaks. That breaks when families decide to have fewer children. Why do they do that? They have fewer children because educating your child is imperative, and it's also costly. Why are they educating their children? Because the level of industrial development is such that 
in order to take advantage of technology as it exists, human capital must be acquired. Education must be uh, undertaken. This is new in human history. The, and, and so the, the demographic imperative, more people, more people, more people, suddenly comes to an end. And then what happens? Indeed. So we see the fertility decline, the so-called demographic transition, and consequently technological progress, human capital formation, and the fertility decline. All these three elements are propelling societies towards the sustained growth regime. Technological progress naturally sustains the productivity of the economy. Human capital formation propels technological progress further and permits the sustainability of the growth in productivity and the decline in population growth assures that this prosperity is not shared by an increasingly larger population and consequently this permits the, uh, the prosperity of nations. Perhaps one element that can help uh, the audience understand this phase transition and the ingenuity in this phase transition is to think about an analog that we that our audience is fully familiar with, which is the transition from water to gas. So think about what we do nearly every day. We boil or we heat water in our tea kettle and we wait till, uh, till the water boils. So naturally, when we put the, the water and we heat the water, initially we do not see much movement. Later on, we see a little movement, but not, not yet phase transition. And once the water temperature reaches a critical point, we see this phase transition from water to gas. The same was true in the course of human history. We see a gradual acceleration in technological progress. But despite this acceleration in technological progress, there is always an adjustment in the size of the human population. And as a result of it, there is no phase transition. We remain in the Malthusian equilibrium. But ultimately, the rate of technological progress becomes so fast that in order to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment, investment in human capital is needed. Once investment in human capital takes place, the fer fertility decline is, uh, is a necessity at the level of the family and ultimately the population as a whole. The growth process is freed from the counterbalancing effect of population, and the world is sailing into the sustained growth regime. And this is the. I'm and sorry. Go ahead. Element in this uh, uh, in this metaphor for the understanding of inequality is the simple observation that when you look at the water and their transition into gas you will note that not all water molecules are converting at the same pace. Some are converting earlier than others. And this is partly based on random elements, but it is partly based on the structure of your teapot and the geographical location of the water molecules in this teapot. And the same holds in the world economy. When the takeoff is taking place, some societies are taking off earlier than others. It is partly random, but it is predominantly based on the way that planet Earth is structured, geographical locations, and how they affect cultural attributes, institutional characteristics, and human diversity. Okay. Uh, I want one more thing on this 
takeoff issue before getting to the inequality issue. And that is, you have a phase after the post-Malthusian you call the modern era. What's the distinction between post-Malthusian and modernity? So the initial phase of economic growth that we see is a phase in which we start to see the emergence of economic growth, but still the Malthusian forces are operating in the sense that some of the, the advancement in technology are not converted into the material well-being of the population because population growth is, is still very significant. So in fact, during the initial takeoff, we see a takeoff in income per capita and we see a dramatic increase in population growth. And what permits this dramatic increase in population growth is that indeed there is great prosperity that can support many more people, but in the race between technological progress and human reproduction, technological progress has the upper hand and consequently we see the growth in income per capita. It is only with the onset of the demographic transition and the decline in fertility that technological progress is finally freed entirely from the counterbalancing effect of, uh, of population growth. I see. The Malthusian regime is simply a regime in which the Malthusian forces are still operating, but humans cannot catch up with technology. Reproductive success cannot catch up with technology, and as a result of it, we start to see the growth in income per capita. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm here to tell you about policy genius. I'm a man in my 70s. I know I don't look it, but there you are. My wife, my lovely wife, is in her 50s. I need life insurance. It's very important to give her the security that she deserves. We all hope we'll never need life insurance, of course, but Mortgage payments, child care, and other expenses don't disappear when we're gone. Life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $39 per month for $2 million of coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees and your personal details are private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Okay, 
Let's talk about the inequality of nations. Your metaphor is a pot of water that's boiling, but relative to the heat source, the molecules that are far away don't boil as quickly. What is that an analogy or a metaphor for? What, what, what are the relevant differences in geographic location and uh, so on that account for the different timing of the emergence of this post-Malthusian and then ultimately modern era. Indeed. So, so one, one more observation that will be important for this discussion is that when, some, when one water molecule is converted into gas and another not, there is a great divergence between. And as I said, this occurred in the world economy as well. Sense that if in the 19th century, many of Western European societies are taking off. And at the same time, we see that in other regions of the world, the takeoff is not taking place. Enormous divergence is taking place because this takeoff is associated on average with a 14-fold increase in income per capita, and consequently, inequality is being magnified. But now, the question is, as you said, why is it the case that some societies are taking off earlier than others? How is it related to earlier condition, what I defined before as forces that operated in the distant past, and in particular, geography? So the way that uh, the, the journey of humanity tried to resolve it is, is the following. So if you, if you look at the, the way that the, the book, the, let me remind you, the journey of humanity is structured, is that initially, I march forward in time. I start with individuals in Africa 300,000 years ago, and I ask myself what brought about the transition from stagnation to growth, what brought us to the present day. In the second part of the book, I take, I reverse the clock. I look at the present and I move back all the way to Africa to understand the roots of inequality. So initially I ask myself, well, when you think about inequality across the globe today, you can think about forces such as differences in technology, differences in education level, differences in machinery that can explain the differences in income per capita. If you take the solar model, the solar model will tell you differences across societies reflect differences in productivity, differences in capital accumulation, and differences in education, human capital accumulation. But this doesn't take us very far, because then the immediate question is why some societies fail to invest properly in human capital, physical capital, and technological progress? What are the barriers in the process of technological adoption and human capital formation and physical capital formation? And this leads us to the understanding that in order to understand inequality across the globe today, we have to ask ourselves, what in the history of each nation brought about barriers in the process of accumulation and barriers in the process of technological adoption. So, as I said, I tried to peel different layers of influence. So initially, I asked myself, what is the role of, of colonialism that occurred relatively recently in the inequality that we see across the globe? And colonialism has an important part in the inequality that we see across the globe. But this is not the only force that is operating. So first, why colonialism is so important? 
But think about the mechanism that I described before. You think about the wheels of change that I described. The wheels of change, as I said, are not rotating at the same pace across the globe. And why is it so? So think about colonialism. When colonialism is emerging, then we see first extraction. Western Europe and their offshoots are extracting resources from, uh, from their colonies. They enrich themselves, and they can free, to a large extent, resources to industrial production rather than to agricultural production. In addition, we see the engagement of colonial forces with, in trade with, uh, with their colonies. And this trade is what may be defined as asymmetric trade, regardless of whether it is forced or whether it is, in fact, induced by economic forces. Ultimately, industrial nations are specializing in the production of industrial goods. Other nations are specializing in the production of raw materials and agricultural goods. But this is a dead end. It is a dead end because, in fact, industrial goods, to a large extent, are human capital intensive. And as a result of it, they foster human capital accumulation and they expedite the fertility decline and the takeoff from stagnation to growth. But in other nations, those that are being colonized, in fact, specialization in the production of raw materials and agricultural good depresses investment in human capital. And as a result of it, delays the demographic transition by decades and even centuries. If you think about the trade relationship between India and the UK, both countries are gaining from trade. But in the case of India, the gains from trade are converted into more people. In the case of the UK, the gains from trade are converted into the prosperity of the population. Let me interrupt you for a minute, because this is very nice. I, I think I see but it seems to run contrary to the long-term, centuries-long foundation of uh, prosperity that you were talking about earlier. This, this seems to be this asymmetry of trade interacting with the um, Malthusian, post-Malthusian forces seems to be a almost contemporaneous phenomenon yeah. and maybe a historical accident to a certain degree uh, it doesn't look like it depends on long-term underlying deep forces. So can you help me understand that? Indeed. So, so as I said, when I think about the roots of inequality, the most superficial one is simply thinking about education, technology, machinery today. A little deeper is the issue of institutions, but naturally the identity of the colonizers and those that are being colonized is determined earlier in human history in the sense that there is differential prosperity, differential development that occurred earlier that ultimately affects these uh, this forces. And this is okay. one force that one has to uh, sort of focus on before moving into deeper. So, so why, why, just very simplistically, why was it that it was the North, Northern and Western Europeans who were the ones who were the colonizers, and it was the Asians and Africans who were the colonized. Why, why was that the way it worked out? Right. So, so part of it, I mean, so 
this is an issue that was explored by, by many others, and uh, this can be related to geographical endowments that led into uh, an earlier uh, experience with advanced technologies and ultimately into uh, the emergence of cities, uh, nations, uh, uh, empires, and ultimately the development of, uh, of technologies that allow domination. And, but, and this is related to what I'm about to, to talk about. So I'm saying is colonialism is important because it allows us to understand why, in fact, in some places, colon, colonialism is permitting the, the wheels of change to rotate more rapidly. And in fact, why, in fact, it's a, it's a stick in the wheels of, uh, of nations that are being colonized because, in fact, it depresses human capital formation and it depresses the process. But this doesn't resolve the issue of inequality. Naturally, even in the absence of colonialism, we will see great inequality that is based on forces that were formed in the distant past. This takes us to the sort of a little deeper force, which is the force of institutions. Okay. Okay. Let's yeah. So, let's talk about that. So when we think about institutions, we can think about uh, two forms of institutions. One form of institution is political institutions that was discussed uh, lengthily by uh, Douglas North and by Asimoglu and Robinson. Another form of institutions is, of course, economic institutions, namely free market economy versus centrally planned economy. And when we think about the role of institutions in economic development, the question is how important it is for economic development and how important it is for the inequality that we see across the globe. And the view that I'm advancing in my book is a very holistic view, a very inclusive view that permits different forces to operate. So institutions are critically important in some regions of the world and they are less important, or perhaps even not important, in other regions of the world. In addition, institutions themselves, to a large extent, are not the primary force behind the, uh, behind, be, behind the inequality, because different institutions emerge in different places across the globe, partly due to geographical endowment, and partly due to differences in the degree of human diversity across the globe. Well, let's talk about it for a moment. So think about the case of Korea. Korean Peninsula is divided along the 38th parallel about 70 years ago. And due to this division, we see an enormous divergence that is occurring between the North and the South. South Korea is 24 times richer than North Korea, and life expectancy in the South is about 11 years long. This is a single geographical entity. I mean, there is no significant geographical differences between the North and the South. This is a single ethnic group. There are no cultural differences between the two. And therefore, indeed, institutions are critical for the understanding of this divide. I mean, there is no significant geographical differences between the North and the South. This is a single ethnic group. There are no cultural differences between the two. And therefore, indeed, institutions are critical for the understanding of this divide. These are not necessarily political institutions that were emphasized by Douglas North and uh, Asamoglu and Robinson. It is 
partly political institutions and partly uh, economic institutions. Because in fact, the two sides of the Korea are dominated by autocratic regimes till the end of the 1980s. So despite the autocracy in the North and in the South, the South is prospering due to the fact that they adopt free market uh, economy. And the South is lagging behind because they adopt the communist doctrine. Ultimately, the North. The North, sorry. And ultimately, the South is adopting democratic institutions that increase the, the gap even further. But we see there political institutions and economic institutions that are behind the divide. So this is, a, this is a classical example in which institutions are critical. But think about the division between Northern Italy and Southern Italy. Income per capita in the South is about two thirds of income per capita in the North. There is the same political institution in the two places. And naturally, the divide there, according to most accounts, is based on differences, differences in geographical endowment that led into differences in cultural endowments that led ultimately into the, the divide that we see at the moment. So we see the emergence of family ties in the South. We see the emergence of social capital in the form of trust and civic participation in the North that is leading into this divide. So this is an example that shows us that in fact, in some places, institutions will not be an explanation for the divide that we see. But we need to resort to cultural forces and we need to resort to institutional forces in different places. But broadly speaking, the argument that I raise is that both institutions and culture, to a large extent, are not manna from heaven. They're not exogenous. They're byproduct of the process of development. So the division of the Korea along the 38 parallel is some sort of exogenous, and indeed, it had a tremendous impact. The Glorious Revolution and its impact on the emergence of constitutional monarchy and ultimately property rights and maybe industrialization in England is, to a large extent, an exogenous force. But otherwise, when we think about the process of development, when we think about the transition of societies from hunting and gathering tribes into sedentary agricultural communities, and the emergence of population density, and ultimately the emergence of cities, states, and nations, this generated an incredible demand for institutions that will permit individuals to cooperate, that will permit coordination in society, etc. So naturally, population density generated an incredible demand for institutions that ultimately emerge in different places across the globe. The institutions themselves are a byproduct of the process of development, and the same holds for cultural forces. Another important example is coming from Central America. In Central America, crops that are native to the location requires large plantations. Why is it so important? Because large plantations are leading ultimately into large landowners that have a say in the political arena yeah. and ultimately leading into the emergence of extractive institutions. So again, there is a link between the geographical endowment and the institutions that are emerging. There is a link between the geographical endowment 
and the type of cultural traits that are emerging. For instance, one of the most important cultural traits that exist in societies is future-oriented mindset, namely our ability to plan for the future. And not all societies were exposed to the incentives to develop this trait over time. If you were part of, say, a society of farmers, where nature induced you to be engaged in planting, harvesting, and storing seeds for the next season, naturally, nature forced you to plan for the future. But if you are a descendant of a society of fishermen, then this long-term planning was not part of your heritage. And as a result of it, you may be deprived from a critical trait that is so essential for capital accumulation, education, and technological progress. Okay? So again, the geographical endowment that induced some societies to be engaged in agriculture led into the formation of future-oriented mindset long-term orientation that was a bless for economic prosperity in some places and a curse in, I mean, and the absence of it was a curse in others. I, I, I want to ask you something. I mean, this is all, this is all very interesting. Institutions and culture are important, but they are endogenous at the end of the day. And you can't get a foundational account just by pointing to institutions and culture. But what, what about Africa? Why, why is it that, in, in my impression, it's the case that we've seen in the developing world, what we used to call the developing world, a difference between Asia and Africa in the uh, uh, development and in enrichment of the populations of these countries? Um, and I, I wonder if your theory has anything to say that allows us to understand the differences in the post-World War II uh, uh, growth and development of the economies of uh, Asia, East Asia, and you were just talking about South Korea, but one thinks of Taiwan, one thinks of Singapore, one, one thinks of China uh, and Africa, where uh, development seems to be at a less um, vigorous pace. Right. So I think that, I mean, it is partly based on, on geographical endowment, as I said earlier. I mean, so if we think about uh, uh, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, it's, uh, it's a region of the world that is unfortunately inflicted by uh, an incredible, harsh uh, disease environment that is naturally affecting the return to investment in human capital, that is affecting labor productivity, and ultimately affecting economic growth. This is one important element. Another important element is, again, that the environment in Africa was not very con conducive for, um, for a significantly, significantly high return to agricultural investment. And as a result of it, it was, in some societies, less engagement that was very important for the emergence of patients and ultimately a future-oriented mindset. Although much of the results that we see in this respect are present not only in the, in the distinction between continents, it is true within a continent. So if we think about variations within sub-Saharan Africa, we will see that in fact those societies in which nature 
is inducing individuals to be engaged in farming are more long-term oriented than other societies. So these variations are quite universal, but perhaps they can be applied to the understanding of these elements. But I think that in the case of Africa, it is predominantly geographical endowment that is, uh, that is very important. And in addition, the issue, the, 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 uh, another important element is an element that has to do with diversity. As we know, Africa is highly fractionalized ethnically, and it is incredibly diverse. And there is a whole literature that was originated by Isterlin Levin and ultimately was followed by Lucina and others that talked about the adverse effect of, um, of fractionalization on economic prosperity. In fact, there is an article that was uh, entitled African Growth Tragedy that basically link underdevelopment in Africa to the degree of fractionalization. But in fact, please. No, I want to talk more about fractionalization um, you, because it links to your Homo sapiens emerged in Africa 300,000 years ago and uh, were of relatively small numbers, but the population is now billions and is uh, uh, everywhere around the globe. Those people didn't, those Homo sapiens didn't get there without having to walk from the point of origin. And you make a, a, a lot out of the, in the journey of humanity, out of the trek of humankind out of Africa. And I wanted you to talk about that because it's linked to the, to the diversity uh, issues that you were just alluding to. Indeed. So, <clears throat> so, so let me start a little, a little differently. So when we think about so one important force, so when we think about the different elements that affect inequality across the globe today, talked about colonialism, institutions, culture, geography, that in fact determines culture and institutions. And now I would like, in fact, to go, as you said, all the way back to Africa, to where we all are originated from, and to think about how the exodus of humans from Africa affected human diversity, and why is it so important. Well, let me start with why it is so important. When we think about population diversity, unlike the sort of the line of research that was developed by Alessina that emphasized the adverse effect of diversity on economic development, thinking about how fractionalization is detrimental for economic development, the line of research that I advance here suggests that, in fact, diversity has beneficial effects on productivity, but at the same time, adverse So there are conflicting effects of diversity and productivity. On the one hand, diversity, naturally, leads into cross-fertilization of ideas, cross-pollination, and as a result of it, greater innovations. But on the other hand, diversity is leading into social non-cohesiveness and consequently mistrust, disagreement about the desirable public goods and social conflicts. So there are these two conflicting effects that are operating at any point in time. The work of Alessina and others suggested that these forces are detrimental in the context of the development of Africa. But in fact, what I argued is that, in fact, there must be a sweet spot level of diversity that is conducive for productivity at any point in time. Given these two conflicting forces and giving diminishing returns in each of them, 
one should expect a level, an intermediate level of diversity that is conducive for development, but not a fixed one, one that will evolve in the course of human history, reflecting the fact that as we move into a more technologically demanding environment, diversity will become more and more important because cross-fertilization of ideas will be much more important than social cohesiveness. So what I show empirically is that in the Middle Ages, say the year 1000, the places in the world that are having the level of diversity that is conducive for, for productivity are located in Southeast Asia. This is the Chinese society, the Japanese society, and the Korean society. Now, when we think about these societies, we don't think about them as being optimally diverse. But nevertheless, this is a different time period in which social cohesiveness that is prevalent in these societies is much more important than innovativeness, and these societies are balancing properly between the two. But as we move into today's world, it turns out that those societies that are having the upper hand in terms of the level of diversity is in fact societies that are having the level of diversity such as the one that exists in the US, namely significantly more diverse societies. And why is it so? Because we move into a technologically demanding environment in which diversity can benefit societies in terms of cultural fluidity and the ability to adjust to different technological regime and the ability to innovate and to flourish technologically. So what we see in the course of human history, as I said, is that intermediate level of diversity was conducive for productivity, but this intermediate level has increased quite dramatically, and at the moment, it is associated with the level that exists in the US. If I would have to make projection about what the future will bring, given the fact that it appears that we live in a rapidly changing technological environment, in fact, the benefits of diversity will continue to increase over time. Now, what does it imply? It implies that societies ought to invest more in assuring social cohesiveness, in educating the population towards respect for difference, respect for others, and ultimately fostering social cohesiveness. So the idea of a melting pot, the idea of basically creating a nation that is relatively homogeneous is somewhat anachronistic. Perhaps it was conducive for development in the Middle Ages, where China was dominating the world, but at the moment, the lack of diversity in China is in fact detrimental for the ability of China to flourish in the, in the century to come. The sense now you, we need I, social fluidity to, uh, to adapt. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to be clear, what do you mean by diversity? Because we have a common, uh, you know, sense, use of the term, and it means ethnic, it means different uh, identities. And that's not what you mean exactly, is it? I No, in fact, I think that the issue is, it's very difficult to measure diversity. And what I think about, the, when I think about diversity, I think about interpersonal diversity in any dimension. The sense that 
It can be partly based on the, the existence of large number of ethnic groups, in which case it will be reflected in, uh, in uh, ethnic fractionalization. Uh, but it can be diversity within groups. I mean, so some societies can be more diverse than others. And uh, again, it has different dimensions that, uh, that come into the, into the game. But in the end, it's just about how we measure diversity. All I'm saying is that if I look at societies today, and if I have a good measure of diversity, it would imply that societies that have certain level of diversity are affected by two conflicting effects. And if in balancing be between these two conflicting effects, gradually over time, we will see that the level of diversity that is conducive for development will become higher and higher and higher. And there is one more point that I would like to make that I think is very important. When I started okay. the discussion, I said that the, my interest in these deep roots of inequality today is based on the conviction that there is no geographical determinism, there is no historical determinism. Namely, we can alter these initial conditions if we understand the role of history and the role of these initial conditions in economic development. If we understand, for instance, that some societies are more diverse than others, some societies are perhaps at the moment more diverse than is conducive for development, and other societies are, uh, are overly homogeneous. Policies can be targeted differentially to this type of societies. Societies that is overly homogeneous, in this type of societies, we would like, in fact, to nourish pluralism. We would like to teach children how to think out of the box, how to develop critical thinking, and we would like to generate diversity in places where it's missing. But if we take, say, a society that is overly diverse at the moment, chaotically diverse, generating social conflict, then the education system has to work on the issue of tolerance and the generation of social cohesiveness, okay? So again, if we understand the history of each nations, we will design policies that are country-specific for societies that are relatively close to Africa, that are relatively diverse. We will design policies that will, that will mitigate um, uh, conflicts. So policies that will assure that we have social cohesiveness for other societies that, uh, that their ancestors are very far in migratory distance from Africa, we will design policies that will foster pluralism, that will foster critical thinking, etc. We should underscore that distance in migration uh, from Africa is associated with diversity. The more distant, the less diverse the population. Can you explain that? Right. So think about, uh, yes. Yeah, so. So if you think about it in, in a simple statistical theory, so you start in, I mean, humanity is starting in Africa. I mean, the Homo sapiens is emerging in Africa 300,000 years ago, and there was a certain level of diversity in the African population. At a certain point, 60 to 90,000 years ago, humanity starts to migrate and populate uh, the world as a whole. The departing population is relatively small in size. The initial population is relatively small in size. And as a result of it, the departing population is not carrying 
the entire spectrum of diversity that existed in the initial population. So this is simply limited sampling from a limited population that is not necessarily representative of the original population. And since this process of migration is sequential, as people are migrating further and further from Africa, the degree of diversity is declining over time. And, uh, and this compression is occurring and is, uh, is quite well documented, regardless of whether you look at uh, of, uh, phonemic diversity or behavioral diversity or phenotypic diversity or folkloric diversity, you see a very clear pattern. The further indigenous groups are from Africa, the less diverse they are in all these ways. And ultimately, people are naturally moving across the globe. I mean, there is a mass migration in the post-1500 period, and this implies that diversity is reshuffled in a way that when you think about the degree of diversity in the US today, you shouldn't think about migratory distance between the US and, and, uh, and East Africa. You should think about the migratory distance of the ancestral population of the US today from East Africa. This is, of course, uh, quite involved computationally. But once we are engaged in this type of process, we can reach the conclusions that I just stated, namely that diversity uh, is very important for economic development. And it appears that more diverse societies have at the moment to apprehend. And this level of diversity, the higher level of diversity, will become even more conducive for economic development as we move forward in time. Wonderful. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I'd give you an opportunity here to, to say anything in closing that you might uh, wish to and urge people uh, with an interest in the subject to get a hold of the book, which is not only fascinating and uh, extremely intellectually ambitious, but it's also beautifully written. Uh, it, it reads like a mystery. One wants to find out what's on the next page. So, Odette, do you have anything to say in closing? Well, so first, I mean, uh, I wish to thank you for these kind words. I mean, uh, I can promise uh, the reader that uh, there is a lot to be learned from uh, from uh, from reading the book. In fact, uh, I was touching just the surface of, I mean, the skeleton of the argument. You can benefit right. greatly by uh, by reading the book. It is jargon free. You can be an economist, and you can be a high school, uh, I mean, a good high school graduate, and you can understand uh, the, the the book entirely. And it's it's accessible, it's readable, and I think, I mean, many people felt that it changed really their viewpoint about uh, about us, about human history, about the origins of inequality. So I urge you to um, to look at it very very carefully. Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you, Odette. Odette Galore, Herbert Goldberger, Professor of Economics at Brown University, my colleague, uh, and his book, The Journey of Humanity. Thank you. Thank you.